Let me ask you this question. When you dream of this world becoming a better place, what does it look like? When you hear some piece of information that is bad news in this world, what do you imagine it would look like without that bad news? If you could, if you could articulate your dream of a better, kinder place, what would it look like? Many of you know the speech that was made famous by Martin Luther King Jr., I Have a Dream. He captured the attention of the nation with a speech that really was held, not heard not just across this nation, but around the world. This is part of what he dreamed of a time of, of racial uh, tension and, and inequality. He said this, Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality to all God's children. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed by their dignity, uh, of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. No. No, we are not satisfied. And we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Martin Luther envisioned a future in which there would be equality among the race, races, where, where love among brothers and sisters in this nation thrived. And so he articulated that. And so let me ask you again, when you dream of this world becoming a better place, what would that look like? What would it look like if, if justice were to flow down like waters and righteousness like mighty streams? For me, it would definitely look like nation not lifting up sword against nation. It would look like there being no victims of human trafficking. It would look like children having never to fear being neglected or abused. It would look like, as the prophets say, every person having their own fig and vine to sit under. It would look like everyone not being afraid of anything in this world. That's what comes to my mind when I dream of a better place. And so when I ask you this question, when you dream of this world becoming a better place, what does that look like? I'm trying to stir your imagination because if you can think of this world becoming a better place, then you have the same kind of fertile imagination that informed the Lord Jesus Christ when he dreamed of this world becoming a better place. In fact, when Jesus said words like this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, he envisioned a future which would be different than the one that you and I know in this world that brings us so much sadness and frustration and harm. And so we're going to look at a passage today in which Jesus calls us to lean into that desire, to hunger and thirst for that desire, to have that so stirred within you and me that we actually long for it with words before the throne of our Father. And so I want to call our study today, Prayer and the Coming Kingdom of God. And so my friends, I want to invite you to join with me as we listen in to some words that Jesus said to his disciples 
when he called them to pray and to never lose heart. As we get ready to look at that, would you join me in prayer and ask the Lord to teach us what it is he wants us to learn this day? Lord, each one of us here today, no matter our age, no matter what our experience in this world, can all think of a world that is better than the one we have now. Sure, there are many great things about this place. There's, there's much beauty. There's much creativity. But with so much present in this world for us to enjoy, it's just marked with a sadness. A sadness that things are not the way they should be. As we listen to these words of Jesus, would you stir within us longings for this world to be different? Would you help us to, to dial in to what Jesus is teaching here so that we may be formed to be the kind of people that Jesus wants for his mission and his kingdom in this world? And meet us this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is how our text starts out in chapter 18, verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, told them, his disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This text begins with the word and, which connects us to what has just come previously. If we were to turn the page back and look at chapter 17, we would see this conversation that the Pharisees were having with Jesus. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Pharisees, like any of Jews living at the time of Jesus, were looking for this new future, this coming new world order in which things would be different. And if Jesus is the Messiah, then he's the one tracking on this. And so they want to know, what's it going to look like? What are the signs that are going to lead up to this? And Jesus says, there's not going to be signs leading up to this that you need to be looking for because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And if they had their ears to hear and the eyes to see what he was saying, they would understand that Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And he is standing there right in their midst. That future that he and they dreamed about, he was actually giving foretaste of everywhere he went. And so when we hear this word, the kingdom of God, this phrase, the kingdom of God, I want us to think in terms of the revolution of God. When we think of kingdoms, we kind of think of a, a geopolitical sphere, and that's not necessarily wrong. But a revolution speaks of a new way of things being, a new order to this world. And so when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's really talking about this future revolution of God in which everything upside down will be set right. Listen to what David Wyndham says in his book on the parables of Jesus. He says, In proclaiming the kingdom of God, Jesus was announcing the coming of God's revolution and of God's new world. God was at last intervening, Jesus declared, to establish his reign over everything, to bring salvation to us people and renewal and reconciliation to the world. So my friends, when Jesus dreamed of the kingdom of God, he dreamed of a new world order with God at the center and humans living in right relationship with one another so that the whole creation flourishes. In other words, God would be the center of everyone's life. They would willingly bring their hearts under his kind rule, and it would change the way we relate to one another. We would no longer harm one another or hurt one another. That's the coming future that Jesus is dreaming about and talking about, and this is what he tells them a parable about. And so we get the preface to this. And so Jesus wants us 
to always pray. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, helps us think through what Jesus is saying. Jesus implied that his disciples would be driven to desperation as they endured the pressures, assaults, and opposition of the world around them. So the prayer Jesus speaks of is particularly prayer that goes on pleading with God to put things right for his people as they suffer wrong in this world. So do you get that? Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom, and he wants his disciples to always pray about that coming kingdom. And to pray and to not lose heart. I don't know about you, my friends, but sometimes looking at this world, it is so easy to lose heart. To watch the evening news, to see what comes across my social media feeds, I just can sometimes barely let out a sigh. Again, Dr. Davis says, Jesus assumes that you will likely have trouble with prayer. This statement recognizes that there are times when prayer will be hard, when we'll be tempted to leave off praying and give it all up. There may be times when we have no emotional energy, no warmth of feeling for prayer. A creeping conviction of pointlessness slithers into our mind, and we find our motivation has sprung a slow leak. But Jesus says his disciples must always pray. So this is where I, what I call anyway Christianity has to kick in. You don't feel like praying. You may imagine it's useless to do so, but you do it anyway. You do it because Jesus says so. His disciples must always pray. There is often simply a certain doggedness about the Christian faith. I love that. And anyway Christianity, sometimes you pray even when you don't feel like it, when you wonder if God is actually hearing and answering your prayers. And so that certain doggedness that here Dr. Davis speaks of is the same kind of doggedness Jesus wants his disciples to tap into. It's the same kind of doggedness in prayer that he wants you and me to tap into as well. And so in order to help them understand this, he gives them a story. And it's a story about an unjust judge. And so he says in verse 2, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is the worst kind of judge. A judge who is corrupt, a a judge who is unjust, that's what I'm trying to say. The, The worst kind there could be. When these kind of judges reign, the people lose hope. There's a time in the history of God's people when one of the kings was setting up judges in the land. Jehoshaphat appointed judges in the land, we're told in 2 Chronicles 19. And he told them these words. Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Here Jehoshaphat tells the people who are going to be the new rulers and judges of the land that they are not judging for mere mortals, but they're they're there to administer true justice. They're there to stand in the place of God, to give the people righteous judgments. And he says, look, you need to fear God because you are accountable ultimately to him. And with God, there is no justice or partiality or bribery. So when Jesus tells us that in a certain city there was a a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, I think you and I are meant to kind of give almost an audible, uh uh-oh, or 
Oh boy, this cannot be good. Verse 3, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And that time to be a widow meant that you were destitute. You had very few options. You couldn't just run out and get a job to employ yourself or to, to gain employment for yourself like we can in this day. You literally had to beg for a living. And so there's this widow. And the scriptures tell us over and over again, God's heart is with the widow. And this widow keeps coming to this judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. I would love to know what her issue was. Maybe someone was trying to buy her property out from underneath her. Maybe they were claiming something that belonged to her, or maybe she paid some of her her last pennies to to purchase something she desperately needed, and they took the money and ran. ran. Uh, We're not sure. We just know that she's following this judge around, saying, please give me justice against my adversary. She is desperate, and she's following him around. And then Jesus tells us this. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Just a few phrases here. He's refusing, but he's having this internal dialogue with himself. He doesn't care about what God says. He doesn't care about what people think. But this widow keeps bothering him. She's become an annoyance and a nuisance. And so he says, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. Just stop bothering me. And in his mind, he's doing this so she won't beat him down. What's interesting is that phrase in the original language literally means, so she won't give me a black eye. Maybe it's metaphorical, or or maybe he's thinking, you know, everyone in this town is hearing that I'm not giving this woman justice. I'm going to give her justice so my reputation stays intact. Maybe, I don't know. I love the way Eugene Peterson put it in his paraphrase of the scriptures called The Message. He never gave her the time of day, but after this went on and on. He said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. I love the way that's phrased. And so Jesus tells us in the next breath, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Jesus says, perhaps there's a good use for unjust judges, crooked politicians, because we can learn from them, even sometimes, given the right kind of pressure, they will give justice, however reluctantly. So Jesus says, listen to what this judge says. He gives justice reluctantly to this woman that he could care, he could not care less for. So Jesus says, hear what this unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Jesus says, you can, you can hear what this unjust judge says, but will not God give justice to his elect? Sometimes that word elect causes people to have all kinds of interesting reactions. Just in the context here, these are the followers of Jesus. Jesus is saying to his disciples, will not God give to you justice when you cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over you? The implied answer is no. He will not 
deny justice. Because God is the God of justice. The scriptures tell us, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 9, God speaks to the prophet saying, I am the Lord who practices kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. God delights in justice. He delights in in the right ways being established in his world. The psalmist declares in Psalm 33, he loves righteousness and justice. Genesis chapter 18 says, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And so what Jesus is doing is he's comparing the unjust judge in his story to the just judge that he knows as his heavenly father. The unjust judge is a crooked person who could not care less about justice. But Jesus' father is a righteous person who could not care more about justice. This unjust judge is faced with the pleading of a widow for whom he cares nothing about. But God is a righteous judge who is faced with the prayers of his chosen ones for whom he cares deeply. This unjust judge responds reluctantly and grudgingly to vindicate this widow. But God, Jesus tells us, he's a just judge and he will respond willingly and eagerly to vindicate his people. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, speaks about this contrast that's being set before us. And he writes, The judge was unloving, evil, ungracious, merciless, and unjust. But God is loving, good, gracious, merciful, and just. Moreover, whatever God is, he is infinitely. He is infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely merciful, and infinitely just. So Jesus is calling his disciples to listen to this story of an unjust judge and to contrast that with the righteous judge, the judge of all the earth, the one that he calls us to call, or he invites us to call, I should say, our Father. And so here's the key point. We continue to pray, not because we are trying to get God's attention, but because we already have it. And this God is good. So Jesus asked the question, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now you should know that there is all kinds of discussions among scholars on how to translate this utterance. In fact, one commentator lists 12 different ways to to translate what Jesus is saying here. And instead of going through all of that, because I would probably lose all of you, including myself, in it, let me just give you my best shot at what Jesus is saying here. Will God delay over them? I'm sorry, will God delay long over them? I tell you, he will grant justice for them, and it will be swift when it comes. There's no doubt to the response that God will give to injustice. But Jesus says there is an element of doubt about something else. And he says that in the next verse, verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What an interesting question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Those of you who've been a part of Mercy Hill Church know what Jesus is referring to when he says the Son of Man, because we talked about this over and over again. In your minds right now, you're thinking, oh yeah, that's the quote from Daniel chapter 7. That phrase, Son of Man, is what Jesus loved to call himself. He's making a claim. If we go back to the book of Daniel, we're reminded of these words. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is God, and was presented before him. 
And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, uh, Scripture started. Jesus is talking about the kind of faith that always prays and never loses heart. The kind that continually is asking for God to bring his kingdom. So Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man comes, in all his glory with the kingdom, will he find this kind of persevering, praying, never losing heart kind of faith? The kind that longs desperately for the future that Jesus dreamed about. The future of the kingdom of God. Again, Ralph Davis is helpful for us in understanding what's going on here. He writes, We must remember Jesus' whole purpose in telling this parable. And we must remember the kind of prayer he speaks of. Not prayer for a new job, or for your house to sell, for your your kid to get accepted into a certain university, but for God to give justice to his weary and beaten down people. God's people live in a world in which they are assailed, assaulted, and sometimes annihilated. And so in in the face of that, they must never give in, lose heart, or throw in the towel. They must keep praying for God to put things right. And this prayer requires unrelenting tenacity. Jesus isn't talking about prayer in general. With our Heavenly Father, we can pray about all kinds of things because our Father cares about us. But what Jesus is speaking about particularly is the desire of your heart to plead with God for that coming future to come, for this world to be set right, for every wrong to be righted, for justice to flow like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so, my friends, if I can dial it down and bottom line it for us, when we pray longing prayers for the coming of God's kingdom, our hearts are actually reflecting the longing heart of God. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean, God's heart himself is not satisfied until justice rains down like water and righteousness like ever-flowing streams. In fact, he is committed to it, as is Jesus. So let me give us just a couple points of application. Let's remember that we have every reason to pray and to not lose hope. I mean, we have a, a premier reason because Jesus tells us to pray. And if there were no other reasons to pray and not lose hope, we should do so simply because Jesus calls us to do that. But in the midst of it, we should pray and not lose hope because we know in the gospel of Jesus Christ that God never gives up on us. He never throws in the towel. He never loses heart with us. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ, as a sacrificial lamb, made atonement for the sins of people like you and me when the sins of the world, we're told in the scriptures, were placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And he bore that condemnation. And he did that willingly. He did that so that you and I would never be separated from God because he stood in the place of sinners. And he cried out with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because Jesus was forsaken, you and I can rest in the truth, my friends, that we will never be forsaken. Because in that moment, when Jesus bore the sins of folks like you and me, God lost heart with him. God threw in the towel with him as he bore our sins and was buried. And three days later, he rose again. And he rose with the declaration that evil, injustice, Oppression will not have the last word. 
Because those things are usurped kings. And he now is the king above all kings. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, said this. Without the suffering of Jesus, evil wins. It results in the destruction of the human race. It's only Jesus' suffering that makes it possible to end suffering, to judge and renew the world without having to destroy us. And so that same Jesus who we find at the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation saying, Behold, I make all things new, is the same Jesus who told us during his ministry some 2,000 years ago, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When will you be satisfied? When God answers definitively those prayers that we pray for his coming kingdom, with the beauty and the glory of that kingdom, when he sets this world to right. So my friends, we have every reason to pray and to not lose hope. Jesus calls us to do it. But we have the assurance that God has not thrown in the towel on this world. So here's the second point of application. Let's use the bad news of this world to prompt prayer for the good news of the kingdom. I don't know about you, but whenever I look at the news these days, this seems to be my expression. <laughs> Let me ask you the question. When you, you turn on the evening news and you get this phrase, breaking news as we come on the air tonight and the tense music is playing, do you ever notice what's happening to your disposition? <laughs> the other night when I was watching... Uh, ABC News with David Muir, and he comes on and tells us about everything going bad in the world and what we, the preview of the next half hour. I noticed I stopped breathing, <laughs> and my heart uh, quickened, and a little bit of sweat broke over my brow. <laughs> We're not designed to endure all the bad news that we hear in this world. We're not meant for that kind of world. But when we hear that bad news that comes at us, even when we unsubscribe to everything that we think we can to, to avoid it. What do we do when we hear this bad news? What if we took the bad news and used it as an opportunity to pray for the good news of the coming kingdom of God? So this is what I've been learning to do when I watch the evening news. I've been learning to pray things like, O oh Lord, have mercy. How long, O oh Lord? Let your kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Frustrate their evil plans. Let them fall into their own trap. Cause good to come from this. My, Lord, my friends, this has been a lifeline to me as I listen to the bad news of this world, to be reminded that it does not have the final word, but rather the good news of Christ and his kingdom has that final word. So what if we, what if we took the opportunities, whenever bad news comes our way, to just have the inclination of our heart be to pray to the Lord for his kingdom to come and not lose heart when there's every reason it seems to lose heart. David Wenham again in his book on the parables that Jesus said, and this is so insightful, prayer is the expression of our powerlessness and our dependence on God and at the same time the most powerful means we have of collaborating in God's work. What is he saying? He says prayer really is an expression of, of our powerlessness to change anything in this world. Sure, we might be able to do a thing here or a thing there, and, and we do do things to make this world a better place, but, but it seems like we get so overwhelmed. And so when we pray, he says, we're actually collaborating in God's work. He actually uses our prayers to bring about that intended end of his kingdom. He goes on to say here, David Wenham, 
God does not bring the kingdom independently of his people, but through his people as they trust him and express that trust in prayer. Prayer is thus a top priority in the revolution of God. My friends, when Jesus calls us to pray for that coming revolution and not to lose heart, he wants that to be a top priority for us. To join God and to join our hearts with God's heart for that coming future in which he will set everything to right. And so, my friends, my first point of application was we have every single reason to pray and not lose heart. So let's remember that. The second point of application is let's take the bad news of this world as prompts to pray for the good news of the coming kingdom. And so here's the third and final point. Let's trust in God's perfect timing. I don't know about you, but the older I've gotten, the more I find myself longing for Jesus to return. When I was younger, I was like, Lord, I've got lots of plans, and so I know you're coming back at some time, but I really like to, to do a few things I've always wanted to do. <laughs> but not anymore. I've seen too many friends bury their children. I've seen too many marriages end. I've seen too many kids suffer. I hear too many reports of human trafficking. And it crushes me. So it is hard to hope. It is hard to keep praying. And when you wonder, Lord, why the delay? Aren't you giving us justice speedily? At the same time, let's trust in God's timing, that he may be doing things that we can't see and understand, that he might be taking the good, the bad, and the ugly and weaving this into a tapestry that once we see, once we see it in the kingdom, it will make complete sense. The Apostle Peter, in his second letter to some Christians who are facing intense persecution, said this. He said, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder but you should rem- uh, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter tells these persecuted believers, remember, Scoffers are going to scoff. They're going to boast in their evil desires. They're even going to mock you and say, Where, when is Jesus coming? I mean, he, he's been talking about this for a long time. You might be wrong about that. And then in the next breath, Peter said this, Do not overlook this one fact. In other words, don't forget this central truth that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We know at least one delay, one reason for the delay, I should say, in the coming of the kingdom is because God is incredibly patient. He keeps renewing today, calling it today, and inviting everyone to turn in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness so that that one who's a perpetrator today may tomorrow be a forgiven child of the King. There's another interesting passage in the book of Revelation. We get this picture of those who've been, who've been martyred and killed for their testimony about Jesus. In John 
the apostle tells us, when he opened the fifth seal, this angel, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So as Jesus opens this seal, he sees under the altar those who have died for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, I got all kinds of questions about this passage. But what we learn is that God is a sovereign one. He's in control of all things. Even the death of his precious ones at the hands of those who would perpetrate injustice in this world, God will use to bring about good. Maybe, like the centurion who stood at the crucifixion of Jesus, and declared in faith, truly this was the Son of God. Maybe God is using even the death of his people around this world to shock people into the realization that there is a king who reigns and who offers forgiveness. And so let me close with this story of Repachi. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and particularly the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you will know this valiant mouse who is brave and courageous and who wants more than anything to be in Aslan's country. Aslan, of course, is the great Lion King who rules over Narnia, the righteous and just judge, the one who laid down his life for people like us. And so here is this, this mouse named Reepicheek, and he's longing, once more than anything, to be with Aslan in his country. And there's this place where he is given the privilege of coming to Aslan's country ahead of his friends and others. And so he sets off sail for that. And so there's some words that he spoke before this, which just tells us about his desire to finally arrive, to be dogged in his determination. And so he said this, While I can, I sail east in the Don Treader, and when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle, and when she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. What a beautiful picture of Reepicheep's determination to finally make it to the kingdom where Aslan reigns. My friends, it's that kind of tenacity that I think Jesus is calling you and me to. That same kind of determination, that same kind of longing that wants more than anything the coming kingdom of God to arrive. For us to finally find our place there where righteousness and justice and peace and love reign because Jesus himself reigns in that kingdom. So when the storms of this life seek to overwhelm us, when we look everywhere and we feel like we're drowning, maybe, maybe God allows us to sink, to bring us into his presence. But let's sink with our nose to the sunrise of the coming and glorious kingdom of God. So my friends, what kind of me does Jesus want me to be? He wants me, and he wants you to be the kind person who always prays for that coming kingdom and does not lose hope. So may your hearts always long for the coming revolution of God, my friends, and may you pray for it and not lose hope.